Hey, gang, we're dipping back into the archives again this week while yours truly takes his older daughter uh, out and about to uh, visit some colleges. We're going to try to do that as safely as possible, uh, but I do need to be on the road, so uh, not going to leave you hanging, though. We're going to go back uh, to one of our very first episodes way back more than four years ago uh, with one of our more uh, interesting and revealing conversations. Uh, this with the great Kyle Rote Jr. Yeah, if you remember that name from the uh, old North American Soccer League, the Dallas Tornado, uh, you're in the right place. If you remember him from the Memphis Americans or on the uh, weekly USA Network broadcasts of the Major Indoor Soccer League, uh, this is your place. Uh, but of course, you uh, absolutely will remember Kyle Rote Jr. as a standout uh, athlete for the uh, 1970s uh, staple known as the Superstars. So even if you weren't a soccer fan, you knew the name Kyle Rowe Jr. And man, did he bring it and show what soccer players can do against the greatest of the greats uh, in the Superstars competition. Not once, but multiple times. We get into all of those stories and more. Here's our conversation that we had way back in July of 2017. Uh, please enjoy. If you haven't heard this before, you're going to you're in for a treat. Our conversation with Kyle Rote Jr. And we'll see you next week. Please enjoy. In many places, soccer was being perceived uh, wrongly, but was being perceived here in America as kind of a second-class sport. If you're a really good athlete, you're going to play football or basketball or baseball. And yeah, you can you can do rugby and you can do soccer and you know you can do other uh, little things if you're not a good enough good enough athlete to do the main sports of America. And thankfully, I think my winning the Superstars, that, that may have been the best contribution that I had made um, to soccer to get rid of that concept that the only reason a kid would play soccer is because he got cut from the football, basketball, or baseball team. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody, it's Tim Hanlon. How are you? Thanks for joining me. It's Good Seat Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We are uh, enthralled, if that's the right word. I think it is, sure, to have uh, as our guest uh, a legend in uh, American soccer circles, uh, one of the uh, preeminent and, frankly, first breakthrough American stars on the uh, on the American soccer scene. His name is Kyle Rote Jr., and uh, if anybody remembers back from the uh, mid-70s onward, Kyle Rowe Jr. was not only the um, uh, the amazing American uh, star uh, for the Dallas Tornado of the old North American Soccer League, but also uh, for a number of years, uh, the preeminent athlete in a competition on ABC Sports known as the Superstars, where Kyle Rowe Jr. Uh, was uh, an amazing uh, physical specimen uh, not that he's not now, but uh, uh, in those days, he was beating all kinds of uh, sports stars uh, in all kinds of other sports uh, in this uh, amazing competition that uh, uh, that uh, kept our attention in between the Super Bowl and the beginning of Major League Baseball. Uh, and uh, Kyle run the uh, the Superstars tournament, I think, three uh, years uh, running, uh, including um, a second place finish in one of the years that uh, he didn't win the title. So. Uh, an amazing uh, amount of uh, stories and uh, interesting anecdotes from Kyle Rote Jr., uh, a, a legend and a Hall of Famer, he, uh, coming up in a couple of seconds here on the show. Uh, before we get there, I want to remind you that, of course, we are, uh, again, sponsored by our friends at Audible. 
and uh, a free 30-day trial of uh, Audible's uh, audiobook service, as well as a free audiobook download is available for you to try uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, uh, and you will get those freebies, uh, and you can cancel at any time. And uh, as you know, Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks with uh, over 180,000 titles to choose from. Uh, lots of great stuff in there. Uh, it is a great way to uh, enjoy a book without having to read or strain your eyes. Perhaps you are busy doing something else. Uh, and the, uh, the the sound version of someone expertly reading a book to you uh, is a, a better uh, a way to enjoy what uh, – what uh, the book is about. And it's uh, uh, what Audible does really well. They are arguably the best in the business. And uh, we encourage you, as I have, uh, to try it for yourself. And I guarantee you'll be hooked once you uh, try your first audiobook for free. And again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats to get yours, uh, a free 30-day trial as well. And uh, like I said, you can uh, cancel at any time. And uh, there's no better way to give it a try uh, then by trying our little link here. And you'd be giving a little love to the show, let's be honest. And we could always use a little love once in a while, a couple of shekels here and there to keep us going uh, as we move uh, ahead in our podcast journey together. It's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, give it a try. I guarantee that you will enjoy it. Uh, and I think you will uh, uh, like it just as much as I do. I hope so. Okay. Enough promotional babbling. It is time for a wonderful and very interesting conversation with our friend, Kyle Rote Jr. here on the podcast. I think for our listeners, uh, obviously, uh, especially those who uh, remember you from the uh, the earliest days of the uh, of the old NASL, uh, I, I'd love to sort of hear some of the beginnings of how you got involved into the sport of soccer. And we all sure. we also we all certainly know you had a very famous father who was very. Uh, uh, prolific in the sport of uh, American football. Uh, in some respects, arguably, you could have uh, been suggested as being preordained as being uh, a follower in his footsteps, uh, pro football wise. How does somebody like that That's with that lineage? Phrase, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, how does somebody with that lineage get into the sport of soccer, especially at a fledgling level professionally in the United States at that time? Actually, it was the 1966 uh, World Cup that uh, really got my interest. My best friend in the Dallas area, uh, on the near the SMU campus, uh, Henry Davis. His family uh, had a British heritage, and so they were always somewhat aware of soccer. It's very difficult to even explain at this at this time. Now, uh, in 2017, how few soccer elements were going on in a place like Texas, which was. Uh, just filled with uh, American football uh, activity and talent and that kind of thing. And so uh, a good friend of mine who was a writer at the uh, Dallas Morning News called me, uh, ultimately ended up calling me a, um, uh, a renegade because I started playing soccer and my family, with my father having been the overall number one pick in the draft in 1951 in the NFL for the New York Giants, and then Tobin Rode, another family member, played, uh, I think, 15, 16 years between AFL, NFL, uh, and also played a couple of years up in Canada. There seemed to be uh, a momentum towards going into uh, football. I had played uh, at Oklahoma State uh, football coming out of high school, had done uh, had a very good first year, ended up uh, 
breaking my femur just above the knee uh, in the last week of that season and ended up using soccer actually as the way to try to get back in shape. Uh, at the same time, that same friend whose family uh, oriented me towards the 1966 uh, World Cup activities um, when we had gone over to the SMU campus uh, and their basketball arena, they had a closed-circuit television. First time I had ever seen anything like that. Uh, and the closed circuit was the first time I had ever seen that, the technology-wise, but also um, had really never seen soccer before. And, uh, again, difficult to believe that in, in the mid-1960s, uh, soccer was at, very active in St. Louis. Soccer was very active up in the Northeast, uh, and soccer was active in most of the immigrant cities, uh, at some level, uh, uh, Chicago, Detroit, San Francisco. Uh, so there were pockets of soccer around, but nothing like what it has evolved to today. And for those of us who were part of that missionary experience of helping bring soccer to the American general public, uh, it's very, very satisfying for me to drive around any city that I may be visiting and to see how many young people are, are playing uh, the game and enjoying the game. And it's not so much that they have to be great players, but uh, when they have a smile on their face and they're joyous for having a chance to play, um, I think any of us who are part of that era in the late 60s and early 70s um, really feel like that uh, we did accomplish a lot in terms of uh, uh, spreading the message of soccer's appropriateness to be um, a core American sport. Well, so, all right, so you're using soccer as a uh, almost therapeutic and or diversionary kind of activity, right? And so how do you even get the, and obviously the, the, the World Cup and closed circuit, and you're aware of the sport's existence outside of your, I guess, you know, your world of Texas and the Southwest and the Southeast. How, how where is the bright light that sort of hits you, if there is such a thing, that uh, tells you that, you know, maybe there's something more to this soccer thing than just a a sideline to your football and, and other activities. Well, as it turned out, I was um, in high school, uh, was an all-state American football player. I was playing baseball. I was playing basketball as captain of the baseball team and the basketball team. So I was already involved in, in uh, three sports pretty much full time and headed to college on a football scholarship. Uh, but after having seen uh, Jeff Hurst score three goals, I think it was, uh, in the 66 final, um, and England's only World Cup champion, championship uh, in, in their history, uh, but Jeff was not a, uh, a messy dribbler. He wasn't the kind of player, uh, Eusebio or, or uh, uh, Pele the, the, or Johan Croy for those kinds of players who uh, were highly skilled and could handle the ball. Uh, Jeff was a finisher, um, and I had never met Jeff. I just saw this man <clears throat> kind of do the very final thing. That, that I guess the basketball analogy would be um, having a, a point guard, uh, instead of shooting, throw the ball up towards the basket and, and have a uh, a big seven-foot center uh, grab the ball, or an athletic, you know, six-foot six guy uh, come take the ball out of the air with one hand and dunk the ball. That's that one-touch finish was kind of what uh, opened up the sport to me, because I realized I uh, not and at that time I was 16, so I was 
trying to, uh, again, continue my legacy career uh, in American football at the time. Uh, but we started this organization in our uh, public school called Highland Park, and we started a team called the Black Bandits. And the Black Bandits were basically uh, a reference to uh, uh, an appreciation for the African-American players. Uh, and the Bandits came out of LSU. They had a football team um, that um, one of their uh, teams that they that they uh, uh, sent that an offensive team, they had a defensive team, but then they had a bandits team. <laughs> and the bandits team were the crazies, and we felt kind of crazy because we were playing uh, on American football fields. There were in the public school system in Dallas, Texas, in the mid 1960s. There was no, and I repeat, there was no soccer club soccer. There was no uh, school soccer. The only existence of soccer that occurred in, in Texas in the mid-1960s, and let's just say 67, 68, the only ones, there were four or five private schools who were sending kids uh, up to the northeast and uh, where, there, where soccer had, uh, had, had continued playing since probably the 1930s. And uh, if they were going to go to Harvard or Dartmouth or they were going to go to Yale, then they probably ought to get exposed uh, to the game because it was being played up in the Ivy League. But it wasn't being played in Texas with one massive exception, and that massive exception were the Mexican uh, immigrant teams that played on Sunday afternoon at several public, um, not arenas, but really uh, locations there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And that was the only soccer that really existed, unless you're willing to go out and watch what uh, the Mexican guys were doing on a Sunday afternoon. And it was much more of a so social context than it was uh, hard soccer, even though they had some very good players uh, there. But these were folks who uh, came to America, and they were working hard to take care of their families. Sunday afternoon was their retreat with the other guys to be able to play their favorite sport, uh, which wasn't being emphasized really anywhere in America other than a couple of the private schools and uh, uh, and the Northeast and Chicago and, and uh, San Francisco at the time. And so uh, just the uh, opportunity to start a team without a coach, without a general manager. Uh, and so here we are, 16-year-olds, and uh, I'm already playing <laughs> three sports uh, and very active in all three of those sports, but my best friend uh, and his family love the game of soccer. So I said, you know what, let's, uh, what I just watched uh, there on the SMU campus uh, during the 66 World Cup, one thing that I knew was that these athletes were in shape. Uh, I, I may not be able to dribble a ball, may not be able to head a ball, may not be able to pass a ball, but I know fitness when I see it, and uh, in the World Cup, obviously, the athletes of all the teams that were playing uh, were highly fit, and um, that really impressed me. So just as a, from a selfish standpoint, I said, you know, I would love to have that level of endurance, and uh, so let's go play. So uh, Hank Davis, Tico Lawrence, and I uh, put together an organization called uh, the Black Bandits, uh, we were not um, 
in any way, any, any way recognized by the Highland Park Independent School District. But um, we started playing and got to, uh, and I recruited my best friends and good athletes from the football team, uh, also from the basketball team and from the baseball team, and we pulled those good athletes together. And uh, as it turned out, we, after training probably for two months or so, uh, we were f- replete with ath- natural athletic ability on the team. We just didn't have a lot of, of soccer skills, but we ended up playing uh, one of the local private schools um, and challenged them to play. Coach Landry, uh, his son, uh, was going to one of those schools and uh, got in contact uh, with that group and said, uh, we'd like to uh, play Uh We've never played a game. Uh, we had to figure out, and, and there were some referees who were uh, in town and who had been working the private school system and worked some of the Mexican uh, teams. And so uh, uh, we got a referee, and we played. As it turned out, we won, but we didn't win based on uh, dramatic, perfect soccer skills uh, that would wow anybody. It was all pure power. It was all pure opportunity, speed, and uh, uh, again, going back to the 1966 World Cup when Jeff Hurst scored the three goals, um, he probably touched the ball in in that match uh, less than three minutes, certainly less than than two or three minutes. Uh, He was just a finisher, so it wasn't as if uh, we had, we realized we didn't have to be able to dribble past everybody. And I think when we ended up beating uh, this particular uh, private school there in the Dallas area, that gave us confidence that we could take on uh, other ones. And so we played Fort Worth Country Day uh, after that. And then then I started a league, and I was the commissioner of the league. Um, and we hired referees, and uh, we got started and played with about six uh, teams there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and um, that's really got is what got us started. As it turned out, during that time, uh, my friend, uh, best friend Hank Davis, uh, enrolls at the University of the South, a school called Sewanee in Middle Tennessee. It's a uh, high academic. Uh, they used to call it kind of the Southern Harvard. I don't know that it was quite that level academically, but it was certainly a very good school. And they had committed that they were going to start playing uh, collegiate soccer. And they played against Emory there in Atlanta and a number of other schools. Uh, And they were small schools. Um, Most of the major schools, the Vanderbilts and the University of Tennessee and University of Georgia, they did not really have soccer programs that I recall. But uh, Swanee was going to have a varsity a soccer program, and my best friend uh, was going to be playing on that team. And so uh, I ended up transferring uh, uh, over to that school uh, after having spent some time uh, in that previous summer in Europe with a gentleman by the name of Ron Griffith uh, who had come in 1967-68 to America as a reporter uh, to follow some of those teams that had been leased to cities in, in America. And uh, Ron's, uh, I guess, direction 
for example, we were throwing the ball in with one hand, and we said, why are these people throwing the ball in with two hands? And they <laughs> can't throw it as far. And, and so we thought we had come up with a great you know, new advantage. And Ron skilled us really in, in uh, you can't do certain things and, and told us kind of what the rules were and all that kind of stuff. And so we just used a lot of the natural ability of our group of guys, and four of us went on to college on scholarships uh, in American football, uh, as it turned out, but we still had that core of best, best athletes from my baseball team, from my basketball team, and from uh, from the football team, and that's how the Black Bandits got started in 1967, and um, that group of guys continues on in many ways. We don't still play, but uh, the memories of the challenges of uh, playing without a coach, uh, even though we made some mistakes, and the, and the, uh, the one-arm uh, throw-in was an example of that. Uh, we were fortunate to have someone uh, uh, help us with the rules, and as it turned out, Ron, that very summer, uh, this was the summer of 1968, I ended up going over with Ron and about 15, 16 players who had played at those private schools there in the Texas area and a couple from Mexico, uh, we went over and played uh, in England. And Ron knew all the English people because he was a writer uh, and a sports writer. And he had been following the 1967 uh, teams that had come to America to play and kind of have a holiday, I think, more than anything. And it was uh, but he wanted to show uh, Britain that uh, even Texas with its it does have cowboys and it does have cows and it does have lots of wild space, but they're actually uh, beginning to learn the world game. And so we went over there and uh, most of the guys were again about my age, uh, uh, about 16. And uh, we ended up uh, playing a lot of the youth teams. And uh, I, my guess is, I don't know this for sure, but I think this is probably true. We played probably their 14, 15-year-old teams. We didn't play their 16-year-old teams. I think they would have just killed us at the time. But the very fact that we were able to play uh, and, and the novelty of it all, Ron was such a good promoter. We wore 10-gallon hats. We, <laughs> we wore, wore bright, bright orange uh, jerseys and coats and um, he understood and he used to talk about Britain as being uh, the, the, the number one color in England is gray uh, gray skies, gray buildings, gray streets uh, and so uh, he wanted to be noticed and we, my goodness were we noticed uh, boots and 10 gallon hats and uh, just as we were walking around the general uh, activities there in uh, in the England in English or the England cities that we went to and we played in, we got a lot of media attention. And as it turned out, West Ham had contacted Ron about uh, keeping me there for the, one of their youth programs. <clears throat> I was going back to start playing college football at Oklahoma State, and so I declined. But the fact that uh, they had some scouts there uh, looking at some of our uh, players was a great encouragement, I think, to Ron and to all of us that, my goodness, uh, 
we're not the best players in the world, but they see some talent in us, and uh, they gave me that opportunity, which, I, again, because of my football heritage, and I had never even thought that there would ever be an offer, and I didn't even understand how you could do that because in America, with the college system, the way it's set up, uh, you know, over there, I did, had no idea that they were signing players 12, 13, 14 uh, ages, uh, at those ages, um, and they would train them soccer, but they'd also train them in blue-collar skills, uh, electricians and plumbers and those kinds of things, so that uh, they had another way uh, to earn a, a living beyond the, the soccer if they didn't make it. And so it was a totally different system than the American uh, academic system. And I will say, too, that I think their high school competency, uh, most of the guys that I played with in professional soccer never went beyond high, what we would call high school. But their high school it was certainly like a two-year college um, their high competency, academic competency in their high school programs that we didn't have here uh, really in the U.S. And so that was another discovery of mine uh, during our month-long visit to England and uh, Scotland. We also played in Ireland. Uh, and uh, so Ron kind of took us around uh, and entertained uh, people in Britain and to let them know that uh, soccer has landed in America and uh, here's an example of even uh, even some Texans that are actually playing soccer and are adequate enough uh, to be able to compete a little bit. Well, okay, so <clears throat> there's another Ron that sort of comes into the into the mixture too, right? And and I suspect the first Ron that you're mentioning, uh, Ron Griffith. Uh, was instrumental in what I guess was a serendipitous uh, scrimmage, right? I guess you were you were playing against the 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 then the then Dallas Tornado either as a, as a scrimmage or or uh, maybe on a on a regular sort of um, uh, informal basis, and and is that perhaps how you got the attention of what was then the sort of fledgling NASL Dallas Tornado Ron Newman experience? No, that's exactly right, and. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, they they were looking for people to to practice against and to train against, and so uh, I pulled our black bandits together, and we offered. We knew, you know, we would not uh, win against a professional team, but they needed someone to practice against and someone to beat up on, and so we offered ourselves. And again, thankfully, we had enough uh, just raw athleticism within our group that. Um, while they won every match, I'm sure that we uh, ever played, but we were, we just kind of gave them the opportunity, uh, uh, you know, to play against. Um, if if you know, you know, remember the game of uh, of basketball, the Washington Generals, uh, you know, were the team that ended up uh, traveling with the Harlem Globetrotters, and the Harlem Globetrotter always beat <laughs> always beat the Washington Generals, and the Washington Generals were just there to kind of be the other team. There were no necessarily any stars or anything on. That's kind of how I felt at the time. We were really just trying to assist the Dallas Tornado so they could have some people they could train against. And our guys, we were all good enough athletes that we could match up athletically in terms of just running and endurance, you know, for the most part. But we we were so deficient in terms of major skill sets and uh, in terms of handling the ball, 
we had a good goalkeeper who was a basketball player and you know six three and could go up in the air and get the ball and uh and that certainly helped but um uh, that is how I got exposed to Ron Newman, who was then the coach of uh, the Dallas Tornado and ultimately was the gentleman who uh, a few years later <clears throat> ended up picking me in the first round uh, of the very first uh, NASL draft uh, in 1972. Uh, Lamar Hunt was such a brilliant visionary he felt like if we're going to Americanize soccer, we needed to add some of the very same structures that uh, other sports had, and the draft was one of those. And um, uh, so he added that, and uh, again, I was fortunate in 1972, even though I was not playing in the Dallas area during my college career, uh, the Atlanta Chiefs uh, had already scouted me, and I had a number of teams that were looking at uh, me at the time, but uh, and uh, Dallas took me in the first round, and uh, Ron was the one who made that uh, selection, and he's the one who had seen me score a few goals against his uh, Dallas Tornado in those uh, little uh, semi-intensive uh, practice elements that we did with uh, the pro team there. Uh, and so I'm very thankful that he had the confidence um, and I think Lamar, if I recall, that may have also been the first year in which every NASL team had to have an American on the team. So you, in those early years, they brought in teams in mass from uh, primarily from Britain, but from Europe, so that those players. Uh, could kind of experience the American, have the American experience of having seen our culture and having flown and all of those kinds of things. Um, but obviously, all those teams went back intact. They didn't take any American players with them. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate to be in that first group of uh, Americans that, uh, by demand, I think, uh, and by requirement, if you're going to be an NASL team in 1972 you need to have at least one American uh, on your roster so that we can begin to infuse the American players into the culture of the North American Soccer League. Well, sure. And and, and arguably the the full uh, importation of teams uh, uh, saved uh, the foundering league in the years prior, right? I mean, without those sort of, uh, without the sort of genius of Phil Woosnam, you know, kind of saying, well, we can quote unquote rent teams or adopt new uh, teams. you know, personas for a summer. I mean, there were some very lean times before and arguably even still lingering into 1972, which, by the way, now brings me into sort of where your head is well, at. And our t- well, yeah, our team happened to be in response was Dundee United. And so Ron Griffith was the reporter for Dundee United. And he was traveling with the American with the team while it was in America. Um, and he ultimately ended up staying here and started a whole uh kind of a soccer retail sports business to allow him to be able to stay here. Uh, But uh, you're exactly right at the, in the 67, 68 era, and even just beyond that, uh, they were bringing wholesale teams in and there was no uh, interaction with any uh, American players at all. So uh, this is probably a good time to ask sort of this question, right? So as you think about being drafted, 
in the first draft from this thing called the North American Soccer League, right? Obviously, you had some exposure to it, having worked with uh, the Tornado in, in scrimmage fashion and, and, and meeting some of the, the personnel involved, right? So you had an inside understanding. But, uh, you know, from a, uh, let's put it this way, a professional sports career perspective, right? And especially uh, being the progeny of uh, a, a, a national sports figure uh, in his own right, right? And, and the name uh, that comes along with that. Um, wh- wh- how do you... How do you square that as an opportunity to pursue, given all the, I guess, uh, uncertainty of the sport of professional soccer, certainly the league up until that point, and perhaps having a famous dad who's been successful? Uh, how, what is the calculus of saying, yes, I'm going to do this? Well, the calculus, uh, number one, was that uh, soccer was becoming more of a world sport to those of us in America and that we needed to join the rest of the world. And uh, I called my father. We talked a little bit about it. Uh, he made a comment along the lines, and he he didn't argue with me at all. He, he really freed me up, which I was very thankful for. Uh, and he said, you know what? Uh, again, my dad was the overall number one pick in the draft in 51. He was captain of the Giants for 10 years. Uh, he was broadcasting at that time. Super Bowls in the early days of the Super Bowls uh, for NBC with Kurt Gowdy. Um, he had a stellar reputation within uh, sports in the league. Tobin also, again, Tobin wrote, had a good uh, reputation as well. And so he said, son, uh, you know, the world is expanding. Uh, we're sending people to the moon. We're, I mean, are up into space and all of that. And um, we... Uh, you know, go for it uh, because you'll always be compared with me. You'll always be compared with Tobin. And if you stay in American football, um, that's going to be a difficult, you know, hurdle to deal with. So create your own destiny, create your own path and be one of the pioneers that bring soccer to uh, America. And so um, I was frankly, a uh, somewhat fearful when I made the phone call to say, Dad, here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to leave a full <laughs> a full scholarship at Oklahoma State and go play soccer at a place you've never heard of. It's Suwannee at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, up on the Cumberland Plateau between Nashville and Chattanooga and play against uh, schools that you've never heard of. Uh, and uh, um, But he said... Uh, particularly after I got back from the trip uh, with Ron Griffith uh, to uh, to England, uh, you know, he said, go for it. And that was really at the time uh, when I needed to hear something like that from him. So I got great support uh, from all my family. Uh, and again, other than that reporter for the Dallas Morning News who called me a communist for having uh, made the jump from American football uh, you know, to to soccer, um, uh, I felt very co- supported and and comfortable with that. So, well, that that's it. Also, sounds like it's somewhat liberating, right? Because what you talked about earlier, frankly, sounded like passion, right? You somehow stumbled into and/or became more passionate about this sport, right? Which was foreign and and new, and 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 you weren't necessarily you know exceptionally skilled at it, but. But clearly, I mean, the fact that that drives you to keep playing in sort of this renegade kind of way, setting up leagues and all that kind of stuff, that to me feels like passion. And 
when you have that, I, I got to think a difficult conversation with your dad. I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of external pressure. And by having a conversation along those lines, it sounds like it depressurized, you know, any intimation about what you should do with your life and truly pursue your life the way you want to. Well, and Tim, it was it couldn't have been more more surprised to me that he immediately supported the idea. I thought I was going to have to argue him into this, and uh, uh, but I did not. And again, for someone as he was having, you know, again broadcasting Super Bowls uh, for the NFL and doing the Game of the Week for NBC, and uh, he had had a a pretty good perspective about world sport. And uh, again, I think part of his reason in, in terms of encouraging me was to help me avoid the ultimate comparison against him uh, and uh, and Tobin, um, if indeed I continue to stay on the American football path. Uh, so being able to, uh, there was no comparison, obviously, within our family um, if I went, went the uh, soccer route. And uh, I'm, I really was surprised when he kind of twisted on me and uh, and, and uh, said some things to me about I'd be an idiot not to follow this opportunity. <laughs> uh, and I think he's trying to protect his son, trying to pr- protect me from what ultimately was going to be perhaps uh, a disappointment and trying to trying to deal with that comparison. And uh, he was very mindful of that, and I'm very thankful that whatever the um, uh, wherever the idea came from, and wherever the inspiration came from, he was very supportive of me, his son, uh, and what I wanted to do. And uh, he wasn't trying to control my life. He wasn't trying to control the way God gifted me uh, athletically. And uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. Well, it sounds like you had a, a, a quite a head start then when you were drafted. Maybe you can kind of walk our audience through sort of, I don't know, the first impressions about this this league that you were now officially a part of, uh, the Dallas Tornado, which was arguably the strongest, if that's the right word, franchise in the still-fledgling league. Um, how wide were your eyes opened uh, as you became a quote-unquote professional soccer player in the United States in 1972? Well, I was very fortunate that I had read a number of of uh, books about disasters of people trying to go into new things and all of that kind of thing. And and just the, uh, I was very fortunate to have a bunch of players, and Ron help Ron Newman help with this uh, in great deal, because they looked upon me, they knew of me because we had done those practice events during the summers and prior years. So I already knew who the players were. I knew them at a certain level. They understood that I did have uh, a great deal of athleticism that God had gifted me with, that I did have some skill sets that they could perhaps enhance. Um, and so what I ended up doing was uh, at various times, during, particularly during that first year, uh, I didn't join the team in 72, until uh, probably two-thirds of the season was gone because I had to graduate and I got married the day after graduation and my wife and I came to Dallas uh, and the season was already halfway done at the time. Uh, but uh, uh, So that was really uh, an opportunity for me to have a couple of months 
to be with the guys, train with the players. And what I did was I asked uh, a number of the players, and I'll mention a, a few of them. Uh, Bobby Moffat was one, and you've talked to Bobby on this podcast uh, in the past. Uh, Ken Cooper, who is our wonderful goalkeeper, who really should be in, I think, should be in the uh, American Soccer Hall of Fame. Um, uh, we had Dick Hall, uh, Mike Renshaw, a number of players who were extremely unselfish because this is what I would do. These guys are were all kind of uh, bivocational. Everybody had another job in addition to being a pro soccer player for the Dallas uh, Tornado because you didn't make enough as a pro soccer player to totally survive. And so that was kind of the time frame, you know, of, of uh, uh, the era. And what I did was I'd ask each one of those guys, for example, uh, Kenny Cooper, I'd say, Kenny, uh, we don't know each other well, but I, it would really be helpful if you wouldn't mind after practice today, let's grab a, get some water, uh, take a couple minutes rest, and then if you wouldn't mind for 15, 20 minutes, teach me the best places for me to try to score a goal as someone who's going to be a forward on this team. Um, and what makes you uncomfortable? Help me understand the. I want to get the goalkeeper out of his comfort zone. And so, would you show me where the how's the best way to manage that? And so he would uh, let me know uh, that uh, when you make a run like this, this really messes me up and it makes me unsure as to what's going to happen. Uh, and I did the same thing with every uh, Dick Hall. Um, who was our kind of our center uh, defender uh, in the back in front of Kenny? Uh, Dick was very very helpful uh, to me, uh, even though he's you know probably five eight, uh, but he was a really good tackler uh, uh, of the ball, and and he was the one who really encouraged me. You've got to use your speed because you're not going to be able to outskill anybody. You're not going to outskill me, <laughs> and so you got to push the ball past me and run and go get it, and and make it a athletic race. Don't make it a skill uh, competition. Uh, then uh, Mike Renshaw and other members of that group, they all had positions on the team, and I needed to kind of learn what it was. Um, uh, to, to be the best contributor uh, on the team and how I could provide some level of goal-scoring goal, uh, success to the team and um, getting information from those uh, defenders. So John Best and some of the other guys who had been there with Ron for a, a couple of years, uh, they all spent extra time, and they had no obligation to spend any time with me at all. Uh and they did it because it, we were all part of the mission of bringing soccer to America and trying to expose it and, and do as well as we could. But uh, these guys could have said to an, the American kid, the new kid in the in the locker room, um, no, I'm going home. I'm tired. We've run our sprints. We've done all this extra work. And uh, uh, you got to figure it out yourself, kid. And... I will say that uh, Ron did a fabulous job of indoctrinating those players of that era that their major job was not so much to win, even though they did, uh, 
and they won uh, in '71, won the, in the championship. But um, it was also that we we had to um, bring soccer to the the rest of the community, and so every single player on the team, I think without exception, uh, spent time in kind of civic activities, going to schools, doing uh, exhibitions. uh, And, uh, I mean, it was as simple. Sometimes I went down to Waxahachie, which is south of Dallas, uh, not quite an hour, and uh, went into a school. And I just held up a a soccer ball and said, uh, you you know, this is... Uh, this is a soccer ball because they had never seen a soccer ball. They they knew football, basketball, baseball, but they never really knew what a soccer ball was. And we did that in great part. And one of our guys who you've talked to in the past, uh, Bobby Moffat, Bobby saw his vision as all of West Texas. And so um, Bobby did a fabulous job over the, the years of ex- of exposing West Texas uh, which is a very dry, um, unpopulated part of the state. But he went to Lubbock, he went to Abilene, he went to a number of uh, cities that the rest of us never went to. Uh, and he to helps plant the seeds of uh, bringing soccer to the youth of that community. And I think all of us were really focused on uh, getting the kids to smile, getting the kids to realize there was another way in which they could participate in athletics beyond the obvious ones uh, that they uh, were aware of from national TV and all that stuff. And so I really do think that the phrase for us was kind of soccer missionaries, and that was uh, emphasized by uh, Ron Newman at a level um, that none of us were, none of us wanted to fight Ron physically, uh, I can say that too, <laughs> and Ron just had that high energy. We have to go. Uh, the phrase was anytime, anywhere, and so we all did anytime, anywhere uh, activities and events all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and for some like Bobby Moffat, sometimes even out to West Texas. So it was a uh, kind of a dual-purpose uh, play the game well, win for Dallas, win for our team. But at the same time, uh, you have an obligation uh, to not miss an appointment and to get out and uh, to share the greatness of the game. All right. Well, let's 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 shift into 73 then, because that's when you obviously uh, became a starter. You became a regular player and, uh, and arguably you became uh, quite the red uh, hot sensation uh, on, a, on a grander scale that I don't think even you would have imagined. But how, how did you how did you get how did you lead up? How did you get into your into your playing groove, so to speak, right? Obviously, you were a, uh, a North American player. The league is obviously looking at American players, especially to uh, to be part more of the, of the mix. And uh, in 72, you've sort of been exposed to uh, a team that's very uh, uh, passionate and missionary in its work. Um, how do you segue into being a full-time and regular player uh, to get break into that first team? Well, I had to obviously I had to earn it in practice, and I had to earn it with the confidence of the players around me. And I think those moments of time that each of those players invested in me, uh, thankfully, brought some fruit, uh, and that gave me the opportunity. Part of it, part of it is, 
that we had two other players that we were bringing in from England. They got held up at immigration, and this is what, as I recall the story, got held up in immigration. And so uh, even though I had been playing their position um, as center forward, I was going to play some for sure, but um, it wasn't really until they got held up, uh, these two players. And um, uh, so we had to go to play our very first game. As it turned out, uh, I had to play. Uh, because these two guys came in, and I don't to this day I don't know if Ron, who was such a clever marketer, I don't know if he did this on purpose uh, or not. But they announced that I was going to be starting uh, for the tornado, and they had a huge crowd uh, show up uh, because of that. And uh, uh, I, as it turned out, I scored a goal and uh, had an assist, I think, on the second one. And uh, all of a sudden now, uh, Ron's confidence in me and my teammates who had worked with me, uh, they saw that uh, I might, you know, be able to uh, to do well. And um, that really kind of opened everybody's eyes. And so as it turned out, the following week, those guys did get through immigration. They came over and Rich, uh, Richie Reynolds was one of them was an uh, excellent uh, center forward type player. And as it turned out, we ended up playing with each other. They We just kind of moved the things around and in part because of the, uh, uh, the crowd that we got that first game that I was uh, playing in. Um, uh, I think no one's ever told me this, but I believe that Lamar Hunt said to Ron, uh, you got to play this guy uh, because if he if he's attracting fans like this, we need to keep that going. And as it turned out, before the end of the year, I had won the scoring championship in the league, uh, primarily um, because of kind of one touch passes to me somewhere around the goal. Um, and so, uh, I, trying to remember, I think I may have been the only American to have ever won the scoring, uh, American born player, excuse me, to ever have won, uh, the scoring championship in the NASL. Uh, but that was due in great part to the guys around me who were not, uh, selfish and who were willing to, uh, let an American kid do well. Uh, and so they get a lot of credit for their willingness uh, to let an American have some success in the game that was their passion and their greatest love. Well, okay, so there's a bit of modesty there, which is uh, par for the course for uh, anything with Kyle Rowe Jr. Uh, discussion, right? But because uh, you were not only the leader in the scoring uh, for the league that year and the first American, and I do believe the only American still to have done that, uh, but you were also named the rookie of the year. Um, and um, but it, it was also sort of another element here, right? Because uh, and maybe you sort of sowed some seeds there with your commentary about uh, maybe what Lamar Hunt was thinking. But um, you were clearly gaining attention uh, beyond that, right? I mean, there was a big uh, Sports Illustrated article about you in, in August of that year, uh, kind of touting you as sort of the, the, the great, I guess, American hope uh, for this uh, for this league and for this sport. Uh, you were. Um, although not uh, necessarily featured, but you were the you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated a month later during the uh, unfortunate loss to uh, to Philadelphia uh, in the championship game. 
Uh, and you were also starting to get recognized, right, on a, on a grander and more national scale. It seems like there were, I, I got to think your name, right, was part of that. I think the the Americanization desire of the league was part of that. And and Lamar Hunt and Ron Newman's, I guess, promotional um, uh, considerations were part of that. But did you feel at any time during the course of that 1973 season that other things were being maybe put on your shoulders or expected of you? beyond just being a good player on the field? Well, they were in one sense. I was sent out a day early on away games so that I could uh, kind of be the uh, uh, market, uh, the marketer for soccer. Uh, so uh, whenever we played an away game, many times, I want to say forever, uh, most of the time I was sent out a day early to go into that town, kind of do the marketing pitch to get people to come play the game the next day. So I kind of missed the last practice before we would go on the road, um, but I was doing uh, active marketing uh, on behalf of the f- other teams in the league uh, in their own hometown. Um, so that was part of that. Uh, I guess that was part of it. But the other thing that happened was uh, being invited among other elite athletes uh, to an event called the ABC Wide World of Sports Superstars and because of having uh, some success in professional soccer, it gave me the opportunity to go against O.J. Simpson and Lynn Swan and Roger Staubach and all the great athletes uh, in the world of sports and the Olympians and Olympic decathlon gold medalists and all those great athletes. Uh, So that 1973 year was really the linchpin that not only opened it up for uh, other Americans, but also, uh, from a personal standpoint, may have been the best marketing piece that Lamar couldn't control, but it just so happened that ABC Wide World of Sports, they needed a soccer player, and I had won the scoring championship, and so they, uh, and with, and obviously there's a name recognition that came from my father, who was still very active as a broadcaster for NBC, and uh uh, but that put me in a position, and then when I won it three of the four years that I was in the Superstars, uh, that eliminated one of the key elements that or uh, uh, key observations, I guess, that most Americans thought about soccer. They thought, well, yeah, you guys are in shape, but you're not really athletes. And so when I beat all the athletes from the NFL, the NBA, and all the other sports uh, that gave us another hook to kind of hang on to be able to say, you know, uh, soccer was not just about controlling the ball. It's very athletic as well. And uh, soccer players are great athletes as well. In many places, soccer was being perceived uh, wrongly, but was being perceived here in America as kind of a second-class sport. If you're a really good athlete, you're going to play football or basketball or baseball. And, yeah, you can you can do rugby and you can do soccer and, you know, you can do other uh, little things if you're not a good enough, good enough athlete to do the main sports of America. And, thankfully, I think my winning the Superstars, that, that may have been the best contribution that I had made um, to soccer to get rid of that concept that the only reason a kid would play soccer is because he got cut from the football, basketball, or baseball team. Before we get off of 73 for a second and go into this, other stuff, uh, um, 
I, I thought I had heard something, and I don't know where, uh, but we kind of try to uncover these little pieces of uh, sometimes apocryphal information. But um, there was that famous... Is this an aha moment? Well, it, it may be. Um, <laughs> let's see. So in, in September, right, so when Sports Illustrated had that cover uh, of the uh, NASL championship game, right? And by the way, you know, people, kids, people today need to know, you know, how just dramatically jarring or or significant putting... Uh, the North American Soccer League uh, circa 1973 on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which was a at the time, you know, the preeminent uh, sports publication in this country. Right. That was a, that was a major editorial decision. Um, yes, it was. But but my understanding and tell me if you know this to be correct or not, that you were the one who was going to be fe- featured on that cover should Dallas have won. But you guys didn't. And thus, Bob Rigby got the sort of uh, accolade, so to speak, despite your picture as well. No, that's exactly that's exactly right. And uh, in fact, uh, they came to town early, and we sh- we spent hours taking photos uh, so that it could be a cover. And the idea of the cover ultimately ended up being uh, a poster that was sold um, by Sports Illustrated uh, with me jumping up in the air and kicking the ball and all of that. But that was they had already laid it out as. <laughs> We were we were a favorite. We weren't a dominant favorite. Uh, obviously, anytime you go into a championship game, uh, the other team is very very good. At, at, you know, anyway, and uh, so uh, they came into uh, Dallas several days early. We shot a whole bunch of uh, photography for them that they hoped was going to ultimately be uh, on the front uh, cover of Sports Illustrated. And I spent hours with their photographer uh, in things that he wanted to do. And again, ultimately what happened is he ended up having to use one of his in-game shots where I was challenging Bob Rigby for a ball that Bob was able to catch and I could not get up high enough to head the ball. Um, And that became the cover for Sports Illustrated when Philadelphia beat us there in that final. Um, But all the other photos that we had made on previous days before we got to the finals, uh, to, to that final championship game, uh, those uh, one of those ended up becoming a very, very popular, um, uh, just kind of a banner, so much so that several years later, uh, I was speaking to our U.S. women's team uh, as they were going through, you know, one of their first world championships and gold medal type things and uh, and uh, about two-thirds of those uh, ladies all had that poster uh, up in their uh, room or in their house or their wherever it was and what school they were going to and so that poster became extremely um, popular even though it was intended initially as you said uh, for the cover but uh, we did not win, and uh, so Bob Rigby, I'm I'm in the picture, but it's it's a it wasn't a one-on-one picture. The one that we shot for Sports Illustrated was um, a, a just me uh, kicking a ball uh, up in the air, not quite an overhead kick, but uh, it was very athletic type of shot. And uh, I'm sure, you know, they scrambled a little bit uh, and then they chose 
a picture that had been shot that day, actually at, at the very championship game, and uh, with uh, and Bob being featured as he should have been. Uh, fair disclosure, I had that poster as well. Uh, just had to throw that in there. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let me let's just ask maybe one more uh, sort of general questionary, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll put it on pause uh, so that you can get on with your life for the rest of today. Uh, but you did mention uh, the superstars, right? So clearly, 1973, you were getting a lot of exposure uh, in uh, a lot of other circles, right? Where whatever for whatever reason, obviously your prowess on the on the field, uh, your uh, your American name in a quote unquote foreign sport, uh, the uh, marketability, I guess, uh, just by the nature of your actual name, a lot of things going in your favor. Um, how does the superstars? Uh, conversation even begin? How does that, how does that, how do you even get in, involved in, in the superstars? How do, how do you, is it an agent? Is it somebody who you get a call in the middle of the night? I mean, how, how does it even sort of pop up? Well, it, it's, it's all actually all of those. Uh, I did have an agent after I won the scoring uh, championship and um, he happened to be with the agency IMG and IMG had a subsidiary uh, of their organization that was the founder really of, of the superstars competition. And, um, as it turns out, um, it was highly successful for, you know, a number of years. And this is before cable. And so on a Sunday afternoon, in the middle of the winter, you're watching people down in Florida, <laughs> these great athletes compete with each other. So it was an extremely popular, uh, series and they needed somebody from the soccer or they thought because they were bringing in gold medalist uh, speed skaters from uh, Europe and they were bringing in boxers and they were bringing in great rod lavers and the great tennis players and uh, the best athletes uh, in the world. There was only two of the great athletes of that era that never participated in superstars. Muhammad Ali uh, really was, uh, was one of those. And Will Chamberlain was the other who was playing professional basketball. But every other sport sent its most elite athletes to compete in the superstars. And so much so that um, years later, uh, when I was an agent uh, helping get some players signed by NFL teams, they actually have a superstars clause in the contract. And the, what the contract says essentially is you cannot participate in superstars type events without the permission of your club or without of your NFL team. Uh, and so that's, was an interesting activity because there was some risk. We had very, we were very fortunate, very few athletes ever, because every was in good shape. So very few people ever got hurt or pulled hamstrings or anything like that. We did have one bicycle accident with, uh, a safety for the Miami Dolphins uh, uh, during my era uh, that thankfully did not break anything, but it I think that woke everybody up to say, wow, you know, there is some risk here, and if we're going to be paying these guys lots of money, we have the right to be able to exclude them from th activities like this. What's this? Box of Awesome. Oh, man. Hey, this summer, Bespoke Post is here to take your adventures to the next level with their new lineup of must-have Box of Awesome collections. Bespoke Post's 
partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. Uh, I have been uh, lucky enough to receive one of these uh, boxes, and the one I chose is called the Weekender, uh, and it's a gorgeous uh, overnight bag uh, in uh, beautiful colors. Uh, mine is in olive with uh, brown trim, uh, but the, it comes in all kinds of different colors, and it's just perfect for those weekend getaways. Uh, you don't need uh, sort of that valise or that uh, overnight garment bag or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's it's fantastic, and it comes from a, a company that I never would have heard of uh, called Line of Trade, and they've really done a gorgeous job with this thing, and I've been using it uh, literally the last couple of weeks for all my little travel uh, needs. And, and so no matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From travel and outdoor gear to breezy summer styles and grooming goods, Box of Awesome has collections for just about every part of your life. Now, uh, I notice a whole bunch of other ones. If you're sort of into bourbon sampling, if you're an outdoorsman, uh, if you enjoy sort of uh, uh, on-the-go uh, beverages, especially uh, when you're out there in the hot sun, uh, perhaps you, uh, you're you a big taco fan uh, and you want to sort of reinvigorate your uh, your process of uh, of creating and, uh, and uh, enjoying uh, taco night at your own home. All those and many, many more. It's fantastic and very creative things. It's clothing. Some of them are food related. Some of them have to do with uh, personal grooming. They're just awesome, literally uh, and figuratively collections of stuff. Uh, and uh, they're yours uh, to peruse and subscribe to. And it's a, it's a tremendous concept. And uh, again, Box of Awesome. It's, uh, it's something that you can take advantage of. To so get started, you take the quiz at boxofawesome.com and your answers will help them pick the right Box of Awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories, as I just hinted at to you, and it's free to sign up. Plus, you can also skip a month or cancel at any time. Each box costs only 45 bucks, but it's got over at least guaranteed to be over $70 worth of gear inside. It's a really cool concept. Check them out. And of course, we've got an incentive for you to do so. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code GOODSEATS at checkout. Yes, that's boxofawesome.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 20% off your first box. Thank you, Box of Awesome. And uh, please, uh, let's enjoy the rest of our conversation. It is a little known sort of fact. I mean, this, um, so uh, what you're referring to is the the, uh, the arrival of, of Pele, right, with, with great fanfare. And it seemed like, my understanding is that the league uh, felt that it was important enough uh, to uh, literally create an exhibition game right smack dab in the middle of the season. Uh, and I, and I, and I guess convince, convince a national television audience via CBS that it was, what is, it was worth the event. Now, going back to your earlier comment about being sort of the Washington generals, it almost feels like it had a little bit of that sort of element to it. And you were the team chosen, but you had a game the night before a couple of thousand miles away, right? Yep. And I, I, I was stunned uh, just from a logistical standpoint, that they would cut it that close. But I think they had a backup airplane that we did not know about, so that it had there been any problem going uh, with regular service, uh, they could have picked us up and still gotten us there. And so um, uh, I don't know that for sure, but I just, as I look at it, there's no way. How would you do? Because it was an international television broadcast. It wasn't just 
in the U.S., so that was a tremendous element of it with CBS. Um, but there was also an international feed uh, going because of obviously plays that had nothing to do with the Dallas tornado. We were the Washington Generals, <laughs> but we ended up we went up uh, two nothing. Ultimately, Pelé scored to tie it up uh, 2-2, and we ended the match at 2-2, if I recall. Um, I think that's right. And um, that, But that was the welcoming of, official welcoming of Pelé to, uh, uh, to the U.S. And Even I, though his, when he played, he did play, I think, a couple of club games when, uh, with his club team, a couple of exhibitions years before, and I don't recall who they were against, but... Uh, but in terms of him being coming to America, signing a contract with an American team, that was the big deal. Uh, because, you know, you, we get internationals all the time, just, I mean, not at the level that we have right now, but back then we'd have the occasional every year or two, we'd have an international game with U.S. national team. And so there'd be some really good players in, involved in that game. But this was, you know, set up for. Uh, television it and television drove the whole thing i mean even i remember we went through several um kind of trials of where we where are we going to exchange flags and uh what are we going to say to each other and you know that kind of thing and so well you were captain for that game i believe correct yeah i i was but it uh but it was just as you said (laughs) this was all kind of made up because it had no it didn't count at all within the NASL league pool at all. And um, they chose us primarily because I, at the time, was, I guess, the most well-known American athlete uh, playing soccer. And um, so I'm aware of that and, you know, I was happy to play the role because that was just an extension of when we went to Waxahachie, <laughs> you know, Texas, uh, to an elementary school. Uh, this was still part of the marketing of soccer, uh, even though obviously there was an athletic element to it all. Uh, but um, uh, and every uh, every single teammate of mine, which is it was just stunning, when the game was over, and they and it was two two. Um, every single one of my teammates ran to play to try to get his jersey. I didn't realize how important it was to them and how important Pelé was to them Um, because I've been around, you know, Roger Staubach and Julius Irving and, you know, all those American iconic athletes, uh, you know, many times and grew up in the New York Giants locker room in a sense. And so Frank Gifford, Pat Summerall, all those people, you know, were – was well known uh, to so it, but that's the thing. Uh, in addition to people running onto the field, which shouldn't have happened, but in any event, uh, it, it was a very strange, uh, quick turn. It was like they were all trying to get close to play as the clock went down. <laughs> Whenever they, uh, you know, the they sensed that it was we had a minute or so to go before the match was going to be over. I could just see people kind of going towards him, and I thought they were going to shake his hand, um, not ask for his jersey and be willing to switch jerseys with him, uh, which is, uh, you know, a very common tradition internationally. And uh, 
we did, Pelé and I did a number of events together, you know, uh, in and around that year and a couple of other years. And so, and he had all, he had, he gave me his Jersey and signed it and all that kind of stuff without just one day at an event. It was, a actually it was, a a deal that we did in Manhattan. I can't remember exactly what the reason we did it, but it was just an aside to uh, uh, the game and uh, and another marketing piece that the NASL was trying to do, you know, to raise attention and that kind of thing. And so, uh, so I still have the jersey, still have the signature, uh, and uh, uh, as I recall, it said "Do Amigo," do, you know, to my friend. I don't know Portuguese, and uh, you know, I know Spanish reasonably really well, but uh, and. Uh, Anyway, so, uh, and we haven't, uh, I know kind of where it is, but we haven't protected it. <laughs> the, the moth could get it. I don't know. You know, and I shouldn't say that because I'll get my old friends from the team who will say, well, if you're not going to take good care of it, if you're not going to put it in a plastic or you're not going to put it in a, in a vacuum sealed area so it doesn't, you know, uh, deteriorate, uh, give it to me, you know, that kind of thing. So. Well, I think the National Soccer Hall of Fame, when it uh, reemerges next year in in, uh, in uh, Frisco, Texas, uh, would probably love to have that too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, good point. To, good point. Um, so uh, do you, is there anything else you remember about that game? Because there was also another famous story that uh, Pelé was uh, almost uh, to the point of, uh, of walking away after halftime because he felt he had fungus on his uh, shoes and his feet. Uh, but the reason, of course, well, there was were a whole bunch, there, no, yeah, there was a. If you watched the, if you watched the match, several issues came up. One was because it was set up for television. They sprayed the field where it didn't have green grass on it. So uh, a day, uh, about a day or two before they realized that, and they sprayed the field green, and a whole bunch of us came away with little green patches on our shorts and on, uh, uh, you know, to some degree on the jerseys and that kind of thing. Uh, and they did the best they could, but it was very slippery. And all of us were wearing, um, you know, cleats. Uh, so we, we should not have had a, a problem. But if, if you just look in the first five or 10 minutes of the match, uh, you see a, a lot more sliding and they, they weren't sliding tackles. It was because of the instability of the, uh, of the grass. And so, um, several of us ended up, uh, you know, at the end, we start looking at, at our stuff and between our, our pants and our shirt, we ended up having, uh, uh, some of the green had come off and, and they hadn't, they had not sprayed it early enough to let it dry. So it was still wet. It's just, uh, it, it's just, it's just unfathomable. And plus, I saw a crowd and an international television audience watching. You'd have to, you kind of have to pinch yourself at some point and go, "What's going on here?" Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Well, and the value that they had, you know, that you place on play and all the other players too, because they're good players on both, you know, on both teams. But you don't want anybody to get hurt. And um, there's just. There was not. It was not a good field. It happened to be the best available place to play it, a grass field, you know, without empty seats, without a lot of empty seats. I mean, there were some empty seats there, I think, but, um, but still, uh, right there in New York, it was perfect for media, easy access. Uh, you know, we flew in 
and went straight from the airport to the locker room. I mean, it was it was a that part is was this you know the crazy thing to me was how how close they cut it, and I don't know what they would have put on the air uh, if we had not made it in. That's uh, that's just it's it's fascinating stuff. I, although I don't know if anybody will. Uh, 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 miss uh, the old uh, Downing Stadium on Randall's Island. Uh, it was uh, a stadium that was, uh, I guess, ramshackle would be a, a kind and charitable word for it. That um, is kind, yeah. No, there was no question. We could have played it in the outdoor of Yankee Stadium. I mean, in, you know, outfield of Yankee Stadium or uh, any other uh, uh, good place. But uh, so the the ball bounced where it shouldn't bounce. And I think a lot of uh, both on both teams, a lot of, if you, if, if you watch the, just the videotape of the game, it's, it wasn't nearly as smooth as I mean, the field was not smooth. So you had a lot of bumps and you had a lot of digs and you had a lot of other, and the ball, uh, uh, in addition to people slipping, uh, the ball didn't go true as you would want it to go. All of a sudden it's rolling along fine. All of a sudden it hits a bump and it pops up and, uh, you can't avoid every every one of those, but you shouldn't have had them at the rate that we had them during that match. Well, so let's let's talk about that sort of time, right? So seventy five, right? You're you're basically a, uh, an American household word, right? The superstars thing. Obviously, you're the uh, you know the, you're the shining light of American soccer on this league that is now you know really starting to get some roots. I mean, I think in, in seventy five, you're up to eighteen teams, and and with more yet to come. Um, was there any? Uh, I'm trying to find the right word, uh, a jealousy or uh, did people sort of, you know, other players in the league uh, kind of just sort of, you know, uh, have a, a jaundiced eye maybe to you and your your stardom while they were toiling and trying to sort of, you know, keep the game going while you were getting all this sort of uh, uh, national attention outside of the game? Or, or was it all a good sort of positive uh, booster shot for the NASL or was it maybe somewhere in between? Well, I, th- I think that was probably, uh, I think it was more the latter. I, th- I think people saw, uh, the players saw that if this helps get their attendance, if ultimately this will help get them paid more, the, the, there's more inter- there's more media out coming to our matches. Uh, I think they saw it in that context that let's ride this horse as long as we can and there was no question that when you go back and, and, and I, you know, you just look at some of the guys that um, uh, the Gordon Banks, Jeff Hurst, Georgie Best, uh, Canalia, Franz Beckenbauer, Johan Cruyff, you know, we ended up having in our league, Eusebio from Portugal, we ended up having, you know, some of the greatest players of all time uh, coming through at, and, uh, interestingly, you know, they were able, unlike what happens in most other countries in the world, they could have a civil life here. They weren't being harassed all the time. People weren't yelling at them. They could raise a family, I mean, if they wanted to. In fact, our former U.S. Uh, head coach who just, you know, left us uh, this last year, uh, that was one of the reasons he moved to Los Angeles, because in Los Angeles, nobody knew who he was. And um, he could bring his family there, and they didn't wouldn't have to worry about security and and uh, someone uh, uh, taking one of his kids you know for ransom and that kind of stuff and so there are a lot of uh, you know I wish the sport had been much more popular and wish we could have made it more popular quicker but at the same time one of the benefits for a lot of the foreign players was 
there was no pressure, uh, anything like what the pressure was back home. Um, and I think they really enjoyed that. Well, but the real money, though, for the players really hadn't kicked in yet, right? I mean, you're, you're mentioning all oh, those no, it, great it never groups. did, actually. I mean, for, for our, our group, it did perhaps for the Cosmos, but uh, and the, some of the teams are willing to put more money into, into players, but, um, you know, that was not the, not the case. We, we got some moderate uh, support, and I'm, I love, you know, I love Lamar Hunt. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, but um, he was a little bit more um, moderate and and not going crazy, not trying to just go buy wins and buy success. Uh, He understood just like he did in the football side, and that's why he's in the only person I know who's in three Hall of Fames, the Tennis Hall of Fame, the Soccer Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame. He always wanted what was best for the leagues that he was in, not what was best for him. And that's a dramatic difference today with most owners. Um, and I'm, it's more than just Jerry Jones with the Dallas Cowboys. I'm, we're talking about most owners pushing for the benef- the economic benefits of being an owner. Uh, and Lamar was one of those who uh, was not. He His first uh, – and the reason, you know, the Lamar Hunt trophy is given in the NFL – it's not because his teams won the most Super Bowls. It's not because he was chairman of the board most of the time. The reason it's called the Lamar Hunt Trophy is because he was the most consistent in the NFL, the most consistent person uh, in terms of raising what's best for the league, what's best for football, what's best for other people, not in any kind of a selfish Way and and he certainly had that same attitude, uh, you know, from a soccer standpoint. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't know how we got on that rabbit trail. Well, no, I that's probably... that, that's great because I mean it leads me to another question. Sort of, I mean, you're, you're now sort of at the sort of uh, uh, the big turning point. Arguably, you're you're a, a big a, a component of that, right? Where the NASL, you know, is going from you know just barely surviving when you got in in seventy two, seventy three. Right to now yep. at the precipice in like 78, fueled by a lot of, you know, current Pele and post Pele and, and star stuff. 24 teams. I mean, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and salaries uh, sort of rising and, and, and big money or bigger money trying to chase to. So was it felt like it was kind of a double edged sword. Right. I mean, while you relished, especially having been there in the earlier days, uh, all the attention and uh, and the, the, the progress that the sport makes on the, on the professional level in this, in this country for the first time, arguably, but yet, yeah. you know, people like Lamar Hunt, and I would argue maybe some of the players, maybe including yourself, you know, maybe this gets a little out of control or are we dr- spending like drunken sailors a little bit, or, you know, are we getting a little too big for our britches too quickly? What was the dynamic well, let me there? Just, we, we had a, uh, Lamar and I had a uh, midnight negotiation in, I think it was 75, maybe 76. Um, down at a hotel there in Dallas. And a funny, very funny thing happened. My wife went with me. And uh, he and I talked for about an hour and a half. And it, and it was all about, uh, you you know, we have to have balance. And, you know, we need to pay you more, but we can't go crazy. And, um, you know, I understood, you know, what he was saying because I still hadn't made any money. Uh, and he and his partner 
you know, we're continued to deficit finance probably a good bit of what was going on. And so there was, there's no big economic windfall that should be shared with the, with the players. But uh, speaking, you know, on the half, we end up uh, getting in the elevator uh, down at this hotel in downtown Dallas. And uh, we had just agreed to what my salary was going to be uh, for that next year. And it uh, was not, Anything, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but let's say it was fifteen thousand. I don't know what it was, but I think, and that came, that went from six thousand to fifteen. So, um, and I, so I became easily the highest paid player on the, on the Dallas squad. And uh, as we're in the uh, elevator, this is like three o'clock in the morning, uh, and I think he took a nap that afternoon. To get me tired, uh, you know. I mean, he's a very clever negotiator too. But I, I mean, I, I love the guy. And my wife and I are in the elevator, and he says, "Oh, and one more thing, we need to have a non-disclosure clause, you know, in the contract because he knew what would happen if we. I had some teammates who were all stars and in various years and pre, you know previously and all that, and so." Um, he makes this statement, uh, and my wife has not said a word the whole night, okay? She's just listened. And as we get in the elevator, um, he says, and yeah, one more thing, we'll, we'll end up putting a non-disclosure clause in your in your contract as well, and I just uh, hope that, you know, you um, can honor that and um, we'll try and do the best that we can, something like that. And... Uh, and he said, is that going to be a problem? And uh, my wife then chirps in and says, uh, Mr. Hunt, you don't need to have a non-disclosure clause in my husband's contract. We're as embarrassed about the amount of money you're getting ready to give him as you are. We're not going to tell anybody. And <laughs> uh it was one of those moments in my life when uh, my wife uh, said something that um, uh, in terms of we're just as embarrassed about the amount of money you're going to pay him as you are, and uh, we're not going to tell anybody. And it just hit a, a humorous chord for both of us, and for all three of us, actually, because she hadn't said a word about anything. And the one comment that she makes she ends up having um, quite a comic uh, viewpoint to it all. Um, that's that's yeah. hilarious. I, um, yeah. I but you know, but that said though, you you uh, clearly were making uh, some endorsement money on the side. I mean, look, anybody who does a little Google search will find uh, multiple uh, brands and products that you were. Uh, well, yes, and but ever, again, that we're still in an era where, for the most part, every player had to have an alternate job. Kenny Cooper worked for Dr. Pepper. Dick Hall, maybe still the, uh, he's probably athletic director now, but he was the soccer coach for, I think it was Greenhill, if I recall, Greenhill Academy. Uh, all of us had to have extra revenue beyond what we were being paid. Um, and that, well, you know, was a carryover really from the early 70s. And, you know, to the, all my teammates credit they all understood that was the deal you know we're here not just to win games we're also here to win people 
we're not here just to make money. We're give, uh, it's, this is about giving an opportunity uh, to play and to see America and to and several of those people obviously have become citizens and uh, have been very good contributors. And Bobby Moffat's a really good example. Uh, and um, that was just the error. And and I give Ron Newman credit for this because, as I think I mentioned to you earlier, he was very adamant um, and very strong uh, in what the guidelines and the rules were. And so we all understood that if someone from the front office called us and said, can you make an appearance at Jefferson Elementary School, um, you know, right after practice on Tuesday, uh, it was yes, ma'am, yes, sir. It was, we're going to go do it. Uh, And did you get paid anything? Absolutely not. That was just part of the adventure and the venture and the vision and uh, with very few exceptions and there were uh, and there were a few but particularly among the old the the older guys who had been there around for a while uh, again Kenny Cooper and and uh, Bobby Moffat and uh, Roy Turner and those guys they all totally understood what this was about. Yes, it's about playing good soccer, entertaining soccer, winning soccer, but it's also about winning a region of America that is focused on a totally different world of football for the most part. And uh, not to ever eliminate, and the purpose and to this day, I don't ever want to hurt American football. I just want to get world football on an equal status um, with uh, with our citizenry and uh, and it's in many ways has achieved that and so uh, then that's a great satisfaction you know I wish it had happened earlier I wish it happened while we were playing but um, it has uh, certainly come about in many ways well all right so uh, uh Let's uh, maybe get to the tail end of your uh, tornado career, because uh, obviously you had a new coach came in in 76. So, you know, Ron Newman, obviously uh, having uh, led the team for quite some time. And, and ironically, the guy, Al Miller, who was uh, the coach of the team that beat you in 73 in the in the final. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, different uh, sensibilities, uh, the league obviously growing by leaps and bounds. And then you wind up uh, finding yourself uh, in a, an expansion team in Houston. How does that come about? Well, let's go back to a little bit. I had a really good year in 77. Uh, I was somewhere in the top 10. I don't remember what it was. But, again, it was uh, we're we're playing against Hawaii. (laughs) We're playing against um, – and I don't I, I don't know exactly what the riff was between Ron Newman, if there was any, uh, and Lamar. I, in many ways, wish Ron had, was willing to uh, been willing to stay. Uh, and I probably could have found out what the reasons were, but you know, as a player, that's really not your job. You just you know, whoever the coach is, you do what you can. And uh, uh, Al Miller had a different philosophy of. Uh, of how to play, um, and he was, um, and and he he had every right to 
do it the way he wanted to he wanted to do it uh that uh did not necessarily favor um me because that was a uh, again a, just a different style we got a really good really really good player jeff Bourne, uh in sure uh and uh, jeff um, was uh kind of became uh, he was a better player than i was um as at that posi- certainly at that position at forward in terms of more um uh, in terms of skill sets and the way in which uh, of holding on to the ball and that kind of thing and he could hold on to the ball a lot better than i could and so uh i don't have any you know i i cheered for jeff and consider him a, you know a friend and uh that kind of thing so it was i just wanted the mission of soccer coming into america to continue to go i had a chance to ride at the helm of it for a while but i certainly uh, didn't have to uh stay there you know forever uh and uh, ron just had a not ron excuse me al just had a different uh thing and ironically you know as as, as an american ron's all was always a good coach and he was really uh wanted he wanted to bring some players in from uh, overseas and uh um, i probably ought to just stop at that uh he just had a different philosophy and you know you deal with it and then we ended up going down to uh uh going down to Houston uh but i think if i think it was during ron's i mean during excuse me al's time um you know had uh, a hat trick against Hawaii and you know I had a good year in uh I think in the 77 year and uh then Al uh no one ever told me this but my sense was and he Al and I talk uh you know once a year or so and we don't have any problems with each other uh, but he had he wanted to bring some other people in and we wanted to upgrade in some ways, and um, it, the fact that I w- might have been a stronger marketing tool for the club was not as important to him as it would have been to maybe the fans and and maybe to some other f- folks. But you know, when you're head coach, uh, ultimately you, you impose the way in which you look at the game and. Um, uh, he, uh, you know, Bobby Moffitt was gone by then. Uh, he wanted to make some changes, and you know, uh, Lamar gave him that. And so when uh, uh, Timo Leakowski ended up going down to uh, uh, down to Houston, um, that was an opportunity, uh, you know, for Timo. Um, to bring me down there. And, um, so I had scored against when Timo was already down there, I'd scored against Houston out the Astrodome that previous year and, uh, and had a good game in our match down there. And I just hadn't seen him a while. And I, I don't know all of the interactions of what all was paid and what Houston ended up paying Dallas for me to come down there. Uh, and as a player, you don't have a choice. There's no free agency at that time. It, it is, you know, we were all kind of going through a 
transition baseball was, football was. We all were in terms of players' rights and those kinds of things. And so um, if uh, Houston is where we go, that's where we go. And so, well, for um, our for our listeners, it was, I think it's important to know that uh, Timo Lukowski was the was a an assistant coach, I guess, with Dallas before he went to Houston. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. And so he and I already had a good relationship, and he had uh, he understood me, he understood the work that work ethic and all that. But uh, he also had a different philosophy when we got to uh, um, to Houston, and uh, he did I think everything humanly that a coach could do to get some wingers from uh, some really good wingers from Europe. And I don't know of his relationship with the ownership. Um, I, you know, he could talk to that, but he just, uh, he told me about a week before we started the season that, uh, you know, we're going to have to play a different style. I promised you that we'd get wingers. We weren't able to do that. And I'm sorry. And, uh, so I, you know, I give him credit, uh, you know, as a man to, for him to tell me straight up kind of what they were going to do. And they were, they were going to try to, we were going to try to be a much more ball control team. And because if you can't have wingers who can keep throwing balls into the, to the box, uh, you know, you've got to have a different philosophy. And we ended up having a um, uh excellent year I, I couldn't have been more thrilled for timo and for the team and the the um, young man from mexico who ended up replacing uh me and he was excellent on the ball uh and scored you know some uh, some really good goals and we had a maybe i don't say it's the best record that houston's ever had but uh but during certainly during that era uh we had a really good uh, success rate and so I think as a you know as a player every player wants to play for sure uh, and I wanted to play I wanted to contribute they had pay, they were paying me very well and uh, very well relative to other people uh, not very well relative to baseball football <laughs> or NBA but anyway we being paid well, you well, put that and, you put that in context, right? I mean, uh, I mean, in, in '78, the Houston Hurricane, I think, had I think tied for at least the worst record in the league at ten and twenty. Um, and I yep. think part of that was, from what I understand, it was the last announced uh, expansion franchise going into the '78 season. And I believe Timo and team only had something like three months to actually prepare for the beginning of the season. So you, you can imagine yep. how that scramble. But then. Upon your arrival, and, and in addition to all the other changes that occurred, you literally went almost from a worst to first scenario with a 22-8 and eight record in 79. So, uh, albeit losing in the playoffs, but still, he becomes coach of the year. And you, it's not like you weren't yep. contributing yep. on a high level, right? Oh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, I contributed in the same sense that practice players, you know, or non-starters, uh, uh, in terms of encouragement, in terms of having good practices. I did everything that I could, uh, but our ball, our, our way of holding on to the ball uh, and movement did not include uh, any long ball passes uh, or very few long ball passes, which, and I give Timo credit because he uh, wasn't just a one way to do things type of coach. Uh, and he saw what he had and he designed our club that year uh, along those lines. And, uh, 
and it worked really, really well. And so, uh, you know, I, I count that as one of the great years of my life because we as a team went from bottom, you know, uh, up to near the top. And uh, it took all of us, the backup goalkeeper and, you know, those of us who, like me, who didn't play that much that year, uh, it was, uh, uh, but it was great. It was great to be part of that. Goodness. Uh, and, um, and I'm just, you know, in the middle of it, you don't always like a situation, but, uh, you know, if, if you've got a scripture tells you to do whatever you do with all your heart with God as your audience, not man. And so that was, that's a Colossians three twenty three deal. And, uh, so my focus was to do the best that I could do in a way to honor God and to help the team, not in terms of self-glorification. So was that uh, that understanding and that sort of uh, uh, self-awareness uh, and, frankly, uh, nobility, so to speak, from a, from a, a personal uh, integrity perspective, did that sort of weigh on you a bit then and, and, and maybe help uh, bring in sort of thoughts of, of retirement uh, from the outdoor game? Well, it, it, it did, uh, and part of it was because I was told early on, even in Dallas, you know, that uh, you're probably going to be, you know, three, four years, and you're gone. And, um, again, I think Bobby Moffitt could have still played personally. I, uh, and, you know, some coaches, they just want to change the culture, and some coaches, uh, um, I don't I don't think – uh, Al Miller ever saw me as a threat to him uh, by any means, but he wanted to get some fresh legs and a fresh, fresh approach. And uh, his assessment was that there were better players at my position than I was. And um, I can't, I can't disagree with, uh, with him on that. And while I had a really good run, um, you know, for f- five years or so, uh, going to Houston um, was tough because I knew that uh, the tornado had sold me, if you will, to Houston. Uh, but I was still in the in, still in the state of Texas, uh, still in, in New Timo and the way in which you know he operated and uh, happened to be very fortunate to be part of that uh, just re- kind of renaissance of, of the team. You can't say that, you know, it's, uh, renaissance is probably a, a broader, you know, decade, year type of thing. But for that team to come back and for it to play and do as well as we did that year, uh, I was really thrilled to be part of that team. Did you ever get dragged into uh, the possibility of playing uh, MISL soccer with Houston? Because there was obviously that relationship whether it was admitted or not between the hurricane of the NASL and what was, I guess, dubbed the Houston Summit soccer team in the first two years of the MISL. Um, were you ever part of those discussions or was that ever a consideration or was that just not part of it? Well, not really. I mean, I, I, that's really uh, to some degree, and I can't remember exactly, but uh, I was happy at that point uh, doing broadcasting for uh, and starting to do that uh, as, as well. Um, and, uh, I had done some events for CBS uh, previously, uh, done some events for ESPN, um, 
and um, I ended up having a contract with USA Network, and I was doing college football every fall, and uh, we'd had the, we would have the third game each uh, each weekend, uh, third best game each weekend. So ABC, CBS would take number one and number two, and we got number three, and we had a very very smart uh, president. Uh, uh, a lady there at USA Network and uh, Kay Koplovitz. Yep, and uh, she figured out that you need to get in homes all over America, and that was going to be the big turning point. So she did a lot of things. Uh, she ended up was the one who I think came up with the idea of covering PGA golf on Thursdays and Fridays. Because you already have the trucks there, you already have the announcers there, you already have the players there, and why should we just limit it to a, you know, for, for CBS on Saturday and Sunday? Well, and CBS was happy to to do that as well. That helped their marketing for what they were trying to do, and so she was doing uh, the Thursday Friday broadcasts for, um, you know, for the PGA, and we were doing the same thing in in college. Uh, when the uh, uh, schedule would come out, uh, she would look at that, and it, it changed rarely, but it could uh, change on occasion based on how a team was doing that particular year. But um, we ended up, I did a whole bunch of Notre Dame games, did a whole bunch of Miami games, a whole bunch of uh, uh, Boston College games with Doug Flutie. And uh, so from a broadcasting standpoint, um, that was a really good transition element uh, for me and uh, in addition to doing MIS, my MISL stuff. I, at one point I was doing Game of the Week for Seattle uh, where John Best, my f- former center back for us there in Dallas, he was now general manager up there. I was doing essentially kind of a Game of the Week uh, in Seattle and also one on Long Island um, there for the arrows, and uh, it was uh, got a lot of miles, uh, a lot of airplane miles uh, during those years. When well, I did that. I, you, I, growing up in the New York metropolitan area myself, I do remember those first games, and it was uh, very late at night. I guess it was uh, a tape delay kind of situation. It was you and uh, and Terry Lewicki, one of the famous uh-huh. Lewicki brothers, doing those uh, New York Arrows games, uh, mostly, usually from. Um, the Nassau Coliseum, I think occasionally there was a Philadelphia game or some other sort of road games. But I no, was, but Nassau, you're exactly right. Yeah, I got very, I got a lot of points in the Marriott Hotel right near <laughs> that, that particular arena. It's yeah. near the stadium. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> that's the highlight of the uh, of the of the, the Marriott, I'm sure. Um, but uh, it um, it seems to me though that uh, from a broadcasting perspective, that you were kind of a, a quick study. Obviously, very ch- telegenetic. You had to good presence on the air. I, I see some old pictures of you and Pele uh, kibitzing during some CBS uh, halftime games of some of the, uh, the soccer bowl from 75, et cetera. Um, yeah. it, it's clear that you were well onto that way. How, how um, so uh, the MISL though, seems to be something that you became almost synonymous with. I mean, your games of the week with Al Troutwick, right? Uh, a right. staple uh, of the USA network uh, in those uh, early eighties. Uh, I, I missed the the core to your question. You said something about Al Trotwig, and then yeah, I missed what you the, the, the question. Game, the, those, uh, so for those who uh, don't remember, our listeners, uh, the uh, Kyle was the uh, the other half of uh, the uh, the team that um, 
uh, broadcast an MISL game of the week, uh, the other person being yeah. Al Troutwig, right? And basically for, on the USA Network, that was a staple of its programming for a good two, three years, right? Those live games once well, a week, right? Every night. And again, it, sp- it speaks to our president's uh, genius in a lot of ways is that she wanted to get um, um, exciting airtime without having to pay out the nose for the NFL or at one time they also did uh, uh, basketball or baseball. I can't remember which one, but they were, uh, you know, went with that. But what they really uh, kind of figured out was um, if you got a high energy event on television, uh, then uh, that you can sell ads to, which obviously is where they make their revenue. Uh, and she was just very clever about it. The Al Trotwig story is fascinating because um, uh, Al was just sitting in the stands and he asked if he could uh, uh, maybe do a tape or two and our producer uh, said well sure I'll and I'll listen to the tape and uh, so he did a he did a game and our producer just kind of put it said well you know what uh, you're pretty good and uh, um, but Kyle's working with another gentleman right now, and um, uh, we'll see what happens. And there was a little uh, um, animosity, I guess, between our play-by-play gentleman and uh, uh, and our producer. And uh, so, you know, I show up one day, and Al Trotwig is there, and, and uh, we... Uh, talk to each other and do the game and he, he handles everything and in particular what Al was great at uh, was pronouncing Eastern European names <laughs> and, and he he practiced he was good at it he just had a gift for it and he, but he worked hard at it I don't mean a gift in the sense that he didn't have to work at it but um, and he Obviously, you know, we've seen him now in the Olympics and we've seen him do a number of things uh, there in the New York City area. Um, and just physically, when you looked at him, you'd say, ah, eh, you know, he's OK. But it, once you hear his voice and he had a very just a very good uh, way of setting things up and uh, was very committed, very passionate about uh anything that he did from a broadcasting standpoint. So it was really good to work with him uh, uh, with soccer and, and to see what he went on to. Um, I, I very much want to get him as a guest. He's on the list. I have not yet uh, reached out, but I'm sure yeah. I can get him at MSG now. But um, do, you, do you remember who the announcer was that you were uh, that he replaced by any chance? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but... Uh, but I don't. I don't want to in any way demean the gentleman. I'll just. I'll just leave it at that. that fair. Was, fair enough. Um, yeah. And look, I know. I know. I may call you back and and and, and no, no. But but the other gentleman had worked for CBS. He had. He, he had a good career in basketball, um, and just the personalities did not. Uh, just they did just not. Uh, they just didn't work with our producer and. Um, I don't know why, uh, and I wish it in a lot of ways because he and I did a lot of football together, uh, and, and the same producer did our uh, football events who did the soccer events uh, for the most part, and so um, it's been um, 
Well, just I have a lot of really good memories of that because we kind of did the second-tier bowls, uh, college football bowl games uh, around New Year's Day and through Christmas. And so we had a did game of the week of football, and then I did some international uh, – not excuse me, not international – did national track and field events as well for USA Network uh, and uh, I think ended up doing uh, – four sports, I think, for them at one point. Well, you're almost like a utility player of sorts for for USA Network and, and with a flexing well, I was, I was I was a stable on college football. I was a stable on MISL soccer uh, for them. And then um, I actually did a rodeo time for them one time <laughs> down in Oklahoma City uh, and in addition to the track and field activities. And so uh, the first three I felt very – uh, competent and could handle, you know, what we would have to deal with. A rodeo, not so much. And uh, I think they thought, because I was from Texas, that I would understand all the rodeo lingo and all that kind of stuff. But um, all right, so our completists uh, out there who are listening, uh, we uh, we urge you to go find that uh, that piece of video of Kyle Rowe Jr. calling <laughs> rodeo. Uh, in in the state of Oklahoma in the early '80s. All right, but so it seems like you're well on your way then. But then, uh, and this is uh, I, I do want to sort of make the, make this sort of the last major sort of area here. How do you get back into the game of soccer itself? Um, the appeal of of getting actually into uh, uh, owning or being part of an MISL franchise yourself. How did that sort of come about? Well, I, I had finished in Houston. I had spent some uh, the summer. Uh, I had really kind of felt a call to do this, and when it looked like I was not going to be as big a part of the uh, the, the team because they were going to stay, you know, we we Timo had a winning um, um, he he just he had a a winning style and whatever the uh, the the math was going to be. You know, for that next year in 1980, um, I had always been very uh, impressed with Mother Teresa, and uh, always have felt uh, odd about uh, hunger issues around the world, and that was has all had always just kind of pierced my heart and that kind of thing. And so, uh, made a decision that since I was not going to be part of the mainstream of the Houston team because we had a very good, successful team, you know, the year before, and there was no reason to change it for the most part. So I end up going, spending three months or so uh, in India, Mother Teresa's work, that kind of thing, and come back um, and uh, get a phone call from uh, a former Memphis Rogues uh, guy who I knew. And he said, uh, look, I see you doing all this uh, um this uh, MISL stuff, and uh, uh, so you got to know some of these owners, and uh, we need a we need a soccer franchise. And I said, well, uh, you know what? I will uh, keep my ears open, and I'll you know kind of see what happens, and get back in touch with you, and see kind of if you know what interest there might be. Well, as it turned out, one day I'm doing a game in Hartford. And I can't remember who it was that came up to me. It wasn't Michael, but uh, somebody came up to me and said, uh, look, uh, 
we're so glad to have uh, you guys here, but uh, um, don't say anything about our owner uh, on air. Would you? Would you please? I mean, he asked me to, he, uh, and said, well, "I said, well, I don't even know what happened to your owner, so yeah, I'm not going to say anything uh, about it." He said, "Well, um, uh, there looks like there's an issue that envi- involving the IRS, maybe some tax fraud or something." Uh, but um, so I ended up calling that day. I called the commissioner and uh, said, "Look, I don't know all the details, but I've had a PR person come from." The Hartford uh, was it Hellions? I can't remember what it was. But, yes. Uh, and uh, told me about not saying anything about their ownership. And uh, I said, and I asked him why, and he told me that you know there's an investigation going on and all that kind of stuff. Well, that uh, the commissioner said, well, thank you so much for telling me about that. And I said, oh, but by the way, I got a group of people in Memphis who are looking to get a a franchise, and if you think that uh, the Hartford team is up for sale or it's uh, wants to, you know, can move and if they get away from this other situation, uh, maybe this is an easy solution to it. Just transfer to uh, another city. They always, they were a good city for uh, the NASL soccer team uh, and uh, uh, the Memphis Rogues back then. And um, they would love to have, uh, an, an indoor soccer team, and and the part of the backstory on that Tim is that Memphis was trying through that we have a dual mayor system here. We got a county mayor and a city mayor. Both mayors were really trying to help push our um, and our business community was pushing as well. And FedEx is here and all that stuff uh, to try to get an NFL franchise. And <clears throat> given our income, average income in the city of Memphis. It doesn't fit anything close to what the NFL needed, but they NFL loved using Memphis as kind of a tool to try to negotiate with other cities. Ultimately, the team, you know, ended up going to Nashville, which has a much higher average uh, income per person, and so, you know, they figured that uh, in Memphis you got, you know, for the NFL maybe you got. Uh, you know, 30,000 people that can afford season tickets. But in Nashville, they've, even though they're a smaller city, they have probably 70, 80,000 people that could. Uh, and they they did all their economic research and uh, all that kind of stuff. And But I, that's the reason why they uh, asked me to see if we could get a team because they said the um, expansion committee uh, looks at all these things. Uh, Memphis has a good golf tournament, which we did and do, still do. Uh, we've the the St. Jude tournament. Uh, you've got a good tennis tournament, which we did up until about a year ago. Um, and they said, and by the way, a whole bunch of NFL owners are looking, uh, have already have a piece of a number of soccer teams over the years, and so there are a lot of NFL owners who really like uh, really like soccer. And so, um, in any event, they. Uh, the people here in Memphis, I talked to both mayors and they say, you know, you know, those folks, would you uh, try to help us as kind of a front man to get in touch with the commissioner and see if maybe we can get uh, uh, a team, if not Hartford, another one, but the Hartford one sounds, you know, that maybe that, maybe they'd be willing to consider that. Well, I get a phone, phone call back and shockingly, uh, 
they uh, did want to consider that. And so uh, we ended up having got a group of owners, of which I was one, uh, that we ended up uh, owning the team that ultimately became the Memphis Americans, used to be the Hartford Hellions, and we kept, I think, four or five uh, players off that team and then um, added some others. And, uh, and, and Sam Stamankovic uh, was one of those who uh, became a real star in our little community here. Uh, but we had some other really good players that we were able to uh, to get from Hartford. We got um, uh, Tom Nevers and who else? Uh, Bruce Rudroff and um, uh, Leo Figueredo. Uh, and there's one other one I think we got. Uh, oh, yeah, was. Oh, yeah. Richard Boot, uh, who is still here, by the way. He was a goalkeeper sure, and was an excellent goalkeeper for us with the Memphis Americans. Memphis Americans lasted three years. We sold the franchise to Las Vegas where it went out there, and I guess you know the league imploded, and uh, they didn't do as well as I guess they expected at the time. I was offered a job to go there, but my wife was here. She's from the state of Tennessee. Our kids were happy in, the, in school. And uh, I was in a position where I didn't absolutely have to move just to survive. And so we uh, ended up staying here and uh, became host of a TV show here called Knowledge Bowl. And for 18 years, hosted that television show for CBS. And it's since been kind of franchised to some other cities and that kind of thing. And continued to do my football, continued to do MISL stuff. Uh, and so... Uh, my temporary move to Memphis in 1981 turned into a permanent uh, move because we're still here. Uh, and so, all right. La- last last couple of questions. All right. So, but that's that's a really interesting story. Uh, th- so, was was did you ever sort of um, was was the irony ever evident uh, in that uh, here you are part of a, an athletes in action. Uh, Christian-oriented acquisition of a team that was called the Hellions. Uh, Did that ever dawn on you as being somewhat ironic? No, I I mean, it was uh, anytime you mix people have a different worldview, you know, you've got some struggles. And I'll say that from our ownership, which included several Jewish uh, doctors here in town, um, it was we were trying to do it as much for the city of Memphis, and I didn't know the city of Memphis, you know, as well as I obviously have now. Uh, and um, so we had some really exciting, uh, some really exciting uh, time. But the mix of players, Derek Smithhurst. I don't know if you remember Derek. Sure. He was a really good uh, forward, and Derek was on our team, and and. Uh, so we had about, you know, I'd say probably half Christian uh, that you could identify uh, players, and the other half weren't, but uh, that wasn't. We did a number of things around the community that were basically giving activities, uh, just trying to bless people and do things to encourage them and that kind of stuff. But the base was our, had already been set. The, the Memphis Rogues, that previous group, had done a fabulous job of uh, inculcating a love of soccer among the Memphis people. And so uh, we were fortunate to have, you know, some good crowds and, uh, and that kind of thing. And, um, and, 
I think Helmut Dudek and uh, Hank Leotard and um, uh, well uh, Tony uh, Carbignani, uh, all those guys uh, and Richard Booth. Uh, uh, most of those guys are still uh, not. Mo- I think of that group. Several of them are still here. Um, a tremendous uh, Helmut Dudek was a fabulous uh, kind of left back. For us, he ended up dying of cancer a few years ago, and Stan Stamenkovich, sadly, uh, was killed uh, in an accident (laughs) falling off the top of a roof. I don't know how you've... Anyway, that's uh, uh, I'll let someone else figure all that out. Um, And so we tried to... I've tried to keep up with, you know, a good number of them uh, over the years, but we really didn't have any, uh, you know, major issues within the... Uh, within the team, other than uh, we didn't win as as much as we wanted to, and uh, uh, one of my former teammates was our first coach, uh, uh, Horst Bertel, uh, who played in uh, Germany and uh, was never on the German national team, but he was close, and so he, and he had married an American girl, and so uh, he they were trying to establish. Uh, you know, citizenship here and that kind of thing. And so, and Horst and I played together in Houston. He he came from Houston uh, as well. And so from that Houston group, uh, uh, Horst uh, Barrel come in, then also Matt O'Sullivan uh, came from there. So there were really kind of three of us who came from the Houston uh, soccer program up to assist those people here in Memphis. And the and the other irony is people are yelling at their uh, their iPods as they're listening to this episode, of course, is that uh, the Memphis Americans uh, were uh, comprised of uh, many uh, non-Americans uh, for quite some time. And you've named just oh, a bunch, bunch of all, yeah. right? So that's uh, <laughs> that uh, irony there as well. Well, we, we played the, you know, uh, at every arena, you know, they always have their song. We, we would play that Coming to America song. Uh, the very popular coming to America song. And, um, I, I still get people coming up to me, you know, this many years later who so love that, um, this idea of coming to America to start your life and to have a fresh look and all of that. I, I had no idea the power of the, that music, but we played it loud, <laughs> and we, of course, you know, we did the national anthem, you know. So, uh, but the, the the music element, uh, you know, when you put together, you produce, you know, a, a game. Um, that surprised me as to how important that became, uh, and people would sit, would stand up and sing, and it's it's a pretty easy lyric to, you know, to remember. So. It was just a very loud experience and it made us as for the the home team feel really good because uh, most everybody in the crowd would end up singing that song as well. All right. One one quick question and then we'll uh, we'll we promise to wrap it up because we've spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, uh, denting your uh, your afternoon. Um, and I want to give back uh, the bulk of your time to yourself and your family. Um were you uh, before when you were you uh, I, I read somewhere don't know if it's true or not were you offered the chance to uh, to to coach uh, in Dallas afterwards or was that uh, is that also apocryphal? Uh, I, th- I 
Well, I, I was committed to stay here. I was called, um, and that's about all I can say. It, even though you know I, Dallas was where I was born, it's where I played high school stuff. It's where I had the pleasure of playing with Lamar Hunt's team and all that. But you know the kids were happy, and as a child, uh, not I don't mean this in any negative way towards my mother and father. We switched. It was also a time in the NFL when every player had to have an off-season job because you didn't make enough money in the NFL during the the 50s. And so Pat Summerall went back to Jacksonville, Florida and sold insurance. Um, Our quarterback, Charlie Connerly uh, of the Giants, went back uh, to Clarksdale, Mississippi. He had a shoe store that he uh, worked every off-season. Uh, Frank Gifford, I think, went to the West Coast and sold pictures of himself out <laughs> in a swimsuit. Um, but everybody, Andy Robustelli, uh, had a sporting goods store uh, up in Connecticut, and uh, everybody had to have, you know, essentially another job, another revenue stream. And so uh, I kind of grew up going from city to city we'd we'd be in new york and then we go to san antonio we'd be in new york and then we go back to dallas and be in new york and so really didn't have a lot of stability and uh one of the things that i said to myself as the oldest son of the four kids that my mom and dad had was wow when i get married i'm gonna i want to try to give to our kids the stability of kind of the same environment the same city as best as i can and so that's part of what's driven us to stay here uh, in Memphis and to try to give our kids that stability. Well, look, and I, and I that's a, uh, that's a, it's an amazing testament to, um, you know, be, being a father, being part of a family and, and recognizing the, uh, the sacrifices that, uh, that life uh, brings beyond uh, uh, either a career or uh, simply the delight and the joy of playing sports uh, as that career. Right. And it's um Life is complicated, and um, those are not necessarily easy decisions to make. But it does seem to me that the easiest decision to make um, with regards to um, the totality of your career, right, was certainly uh, made and rectified in 2009 when you were inducted to two halls of fame uh, as an English major. I believe that's how we say it. Uh, But not only the sport, the state of Texas, but also uh, the National Soccer Hall of Fame. there's some argument that uh, it should have happened a bit sooner than 2009, but uh, I'll let others conjecture around that. I, I have to suspect that that is at least some level of uh, gratitude uh, and arguably still probably more to come as the sport gets more um, uh, successful uh, by the year here uh, in this modern age of your contributions and uh, and a lot of what you've mentioned uh, throughout this conversation, which is uh, almost to the point of being a missionary in some respects for a uh, a sport uh, that uh, truly needed those kinds of efforts back in, in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of sacrifices. My wife obviously had to make a lot of sacrifices. But I, to an earlier question, uh, when I would fly out on a Thursday night to go into a city to try to promote the game that we were going to play on Saturday, um, that meant that I couldn't be with my with the Dallas Tornado uh, for our Friday kind of pregame, uh, you know, walkthrough in practice. And so, uh, a lot of times I would end up meeting the players at the hotel after they had just landed uh, from Dallas, and 
So there was a sacrifice, you know, for them because they uh, put up with me not being at the last practice before us going into a game. And uh, the coaches, same way, uh, Ron Newman, and uh, same kind of deal. and but that was part of the you know that's what I understood and Pelé I think is the one who really kind of taught me that not not so much I didn't sit in the classroom with him I just watched you know the man and he always was able to uh, be positive and be greeting I know he had to be dead tired most of the time but he still always smiled he still always waved he still always did what he did and it had nothing to do with what he was going to do on the field, uh, but uh, he he was just such a good uh, salesperson on behalf of the game. And you know, I think he he took bringing soccer to America, uh, as many of the Cosmo publications said. You know, well, that was his challenge was to bring soccer to America, help bring a higher uh, respect for the game uh, here in America, and he certainly accomplished. Uh, that so just watching the way he handled things and uh i'm not saying he never got a yellow card i don't know if he got any red cards uh but he played the game uh athletic he played it hard um uh and but he picked people up and uh people seemed to really respect him and so uh even though i didn't know him you know super well we played against each other and we had a number of these events together but in terms of really core you know, uh, to, to really know uh, all about him. Uh, when they in Biafra and uh, Biafra in Africa, when he came, there was a civil war going on, and he put a condition on coming to that part of the world. And he said, uh, "I will only come if you guys stop fighting." And despite all the previous efforts by the governments, by both sides, by military, by everybody else to quit fighting, um, they continued to fight. But when Pelé came, they stopped. And when I think about uh, issues that have happened in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador in terms of little border wars and all that kind of thing, uh, certainly soccer on occasion sets a platform uh you know for great athletic performance but it also uh has a political element to it as well and a political power and when you join that with someone like uh Pelé who you know I've never met anyone who didn't really like him uh in addition to respecting him for all the remarkable accomplishments that he had um so I just tried to take a uh, a tone just kind of watching the master of how he did it. I could never match his athletic or his soccer skills, um, but his uh, ambassador skills were A plus, and I always wanted to try to make sure I never embarrassed the game and tried to honor him. Well, I think you were uh, uh, the complete uh, diametric opposite of an embarrassment. You were obviously a, uh, a, a true pioneer of the sport. This is partially why we do these. Uh, these conversations because, uh, you know, there's a whole element of uh, of soccer fan here in the United States. I mean, arguably, it's an embarrassment of riches these days, given what's what's transpired in the game. Obviously, still lots yet to come. But, um, you know, without the pioneering work, and I hate to overuse that word, but it, it's a, it's apt here. Um, yep. You know, this these uh, on the shoulders uh, of others, you know, uh, 
makes this sport and has made this sport uh, so persistently uh, successful, um, you know, in today's modern age. So, you know, uh, to the fact that you're at least recognized by whatever halls of fame you could qualify for uh, is a, a small recognition, arguably, of, uh, of, of your contributions to the game and the sport in this country. Well, I'm very honored to be part of an army of people, um, again, some of whom you've already, you know, uh, Michael Minchell and, uh, and Bobby uh, and some of the other folks that you have talked to that were all part of that and, and had different perhaps assignments, but we were all uh, trying to uh, keep smiles on young people's faces and uh, even though they might have sweat on their brow. Uh, it was with a smile, and uh, that's the magic of the game of soccer. And I don't worship it in the sense that, uh, you know, it's above, you know, my God worship, but I, I certainly uh, am very thankful that the game exists because it's done a lot of good. All right, this will be the last question, I promise. Uh, can you ever have imagined where the sport of soccer would be uh, in this day and age? And, and what is your what is your assessment of it, uh, MLS and all the minor leagues and the U.S. national team success levels. Um, uh, there's got to be some element of pride, perhaps, in what you um, helped sort of usher in in the early days. Um, how about the future of the sport? Do you think it's pretty strong? Well, I, I do. Uh, you know, in one way, I look at the women's game and uh, the remarkable success they had because we all st- all the women's world for the most part women's soccer all start at the same time all goes back to i think what 1972 and title nine and that kind of thing um and our ladies have done extremely well uh and not every obviously not every culture not every you know has women's soccer and all that kind of stuff but they've done really really well you know we're about a century behind in men, men's soccer and so when a child is born um in my era, uh, in the 70s, very, very few parents would ever think of a vision, well, well, one day he'll be a soccer player. It was always, well, one day he'll be a, you know, maybe a football, basketball, baseball player, something like tennis, golf, those kinds of things. Thankfully, that has now changed in many ways to where soccer is part of the, the conversation. And we still haven't seen the best benefits of that because if you look at I mean Brazil just as an example okay if you're a great athlete in Brazil you've got basically one choice uh, maybe two you could say the Brazilian basketball program and, and arguably you know they're pretty good at that kind of thing but and maybe uh, it could be uh, you could be an international race car driver um, they so they've had some success with that but, you know, 98% of kids born in Brazil, you know, at least have a view that to, to play the game of soccer at some level, that kind of thing. Um, we're the, by far the most diverse country in the world in terms of sports opportunity. And we're not forced to have to play only one sport like they are in some countries. Uh, and we have this wonderful uh, menu. It's... Uh, um, just one of the best, I think, one of the best parts, uh, uh, really, of Amer- you know, of America, that y- your size, um, you know, doesn't 
keep you from playing the, the game of soccer for the most part. And uh, we're just, uh, we have so many choices. And that's part of our freedom and part of the difficulty of managing our freedom um, uh, is, you know, which one do you do? I've always told people, when people say about your kids, well, like if I give you a good example, Roger Stahlback, you know, you know, friends when I lived in Dallas and he was playing with the Cowboys, and he did not let his son Jeff play football until his senior year of high school. Jeff became a very good soccer player. Jeff became a very good baseball player, and part of the reason Roger did that is because of the concussion issue that is continuing to grow as an issue in American football. And so, you know, I'm not a prognosticator. Uh, I'm not a seer. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future, but I would imagine that uh, as the American football sport continues to have to deal with the concussion uh, challenges, uh, that a lot more kids are going to be, a lot more young people are going to be uh, ushered into uh, playing uh, playing soccer. And uh, I don't wish badly for American football at all because I, my whole family has background with that and my broadcasting of the sport and all of that. But uh, certainly soccer gives a very good alternative to really good athletes and when you look at the rest of the world, when I was on the, you know, there are 210 nations in the world. When I played on our national team, uh, we weren't 210, but we were, we were probably in the 60s somewhere, 60s, 70s. We beat Poland in my first game. We beat uh, Bermuda, I think, in the second game, and then had a whole string of losses to Mexico and Poland and Italy and all of that. And so we sometimes get these little false senses that, well, we've made it, we're just as good as all the other top soccer teams in the world, and that's uh, that's not quite the, the case. I mean, we're certainly moving in that direction, but um, this idea of uh, an alternative to uh, American football is a very enticing one for me as I look at it, uh, and, and as more and more parents who know that I play both sports would say, well, what do you what what do you think? What would you advise? And I said, well, look, you know, I'm not an I'm not an expert on brain science. There are other people that you ought to ask questions about that. But let me just tell you what Roger did with his son, uh, what Stallback did with his son, and that was he kept him out of football until he was really fully developed. And you can argue what that age group is, but that's probably you know, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there, uh, and uh, had him play other sports uh, because of his concern uh, for the health of his son. And so I think that's going to end up becoming a uh, a bigger issue nationally uh, of how do we uh, enjoy the game of American football without uh, having to incur the risks that we have had. We don't put people in the military until they're at least 18, I think. And I'm not suggesting that that's the rule that they ought to adopt in American football, but it may be something that they ought to at least look at that uh, I get really scared and sad when I see fourth and fifth graders playing tackle football um, because of the physical development hasn't matured enough to provide a safe body to be able to take some of those impact hits 
and uh, I think just out of the enthusiasm, I don't think parents ever do it intentionally, want to put their children in harm. I think they just don't understand, they just don't know uh, what can happen uh, with youth sports, uh, injuries particularly in that sport. And I, I see soccer as perhaps a beneficiary of that. Sure. And and obviously with uh, collegiate programs uh, robustly available and uh, a major league and, and a, a thriving and growing minor league system in the United States, there's actually uh, professional and or uh, other uh, uh, benefits of, of, of soccer uh, beyond just uh, a play school thing or a playground thing in the, in the, in the, you know, one's early years just for fun. And, and, you know, again, it come back to some of those, uh, those pioneering efforts that uh, folks like you uh, made happen, right? And those those foundations, those building blocks, right? Uh, I've arguably set up, um, you know, a, such a, 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 a smorgasbord of opportunity that the sport can actually uh, uh, act as an entree for 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 many kids today, and and as a viable option even as a career. And that's um, yep. you know that's that's lost, I think, on, on this generation in terms of where that came from. But uh, it is not lost to uh, people like myself and our listeners about. Uh, who uh, who should get some of the credit or a lot of the credit for those building blocks? Well, Tim, it's been a joy talking to you and to talk to someone who's followed the game uh, for a long period of time. And I um, thank you for the uh, phone call and uh, good to talk with you. Okay, there you have it. And uh, friends, I am not going to lie to you. That was uh, a real thrill uh, to get to talk to uh, Kyle Rowe Jr., uh, a legend uh, and a true superstar in every sense of the word, uh, pun intended, um, and uh, somebody that uh, I have uh, grown to admire over the years, uh, ever since I was a kid, uh, and enthralled by the original days of the North American Soccer League and my own little fledgling uh, soccer career, uh, short-lived as it might have been uh, as a youth. Uh, Kyle Rowe Jr. is a, a wonderful uh, human being, and uh, I think you've got a sense of that, and uh, the stories and the history as well. Uh, just top-notch, and I can't thank him enough. I um, want to remind you that uh, Kyle uh, is available for uh, public speaking engagements. He does a ton of those. Uh, and if you have a civic organization or a sports group uh, that could be inspired by Kyle's uh, story and and uh, and exploits, I think uh, you would benefit by uh, giving him uh, uh, a, an email to kyle.rotejr, that's R-O-T-E-J-R, at gmail.com. Again, that's Kyle.RoteJr, R-O-T-E-J-R, at gmail.com, uh, and uh, he will hopefully respond in kind, and, uh, and you can figure out how Kyle can come speak uh, to, your, uh, to your group. I think uh, that, too, would be a, a fun exchange and uh, lots to learn from the great Kyle Rote Jr., and um, uh, we can't, again, thank him enough for being part of our fledgling little podcast here on episode number, gee, what is it, 19? Uh, boy, has time flown. Uh, again, thank you for uh, listening. Uh, follow us on social media. Uh, you find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Facebook, we have a page devoted to the site. Obviously, Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and our website, of course. If you can't remember any of this stuff or there's something you forgot, uh, you want to download uh, 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 an episode in the past or all of the episodes, uh, you want to get a book. Uh, or a movie or anything else we've referenced on the show, the place to find it, all of that is goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. Visit early, visit often. Thank you so much for your uh, support. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you can rate and review podcast episodes. We uh, benefit and love those too. 
And um, stay tuned. We've got lots of other great uh, conversations and interviews and stories to come. And uh, we thank you for your support thus far. My name is Tim Hanlon. This is the podcast we call Good Seats Still Available. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait to see you again or listen or talk to you again, whatever, you know, sometime soon. Take care, everybody. 